Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. This episode features Kieran Mackle. Kieran is a primary mathematics specialist teacher from the UK, an author, and is currently working with Complete Maths. He's also the host of Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, a podcast that should definitely be on your playlist. And this episode is actually the second part of our conversation. In the first part, Kieran quizzes me for his podcast. However, in today's episode, you will get an in-depth look at how deeply Kieran has thought about primary mathematics. We look at a number of topics including concrete, context, pictorial, abstract language, threshold concepts, depth and challenge, storytelling, and word problems. Kieran also analyzes the lesson structure that I recently proposed. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kieran Mackle. Gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest for the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, Kieran Mackle. Uh, Kieran is an author of a couple of books, including Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics. He also runs a podcast by the name of Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. Uh, he is a teacher, uh, math specialist, and currently working with Complete Maths. Kieran, are you able to give us um, a bit of a background to your journey and how you ended up in the position that you were in today? Absolutely. It's great to be here. I mean, introducing myself is, is the weakest part of my game, so to speak. And I'm, whenever I'm a conference, I'm, I'm really bad at this. So I hope this goes okay. But essentially, I trained to be a teacher in at the start of you know in around about 2004 i think i started and the idea was that i wanted to, to be in a position where i could help pupils who really needed education you know to improve their life chances to develop their sort of their social stand and things like that. and so i moved to england and an area of high socioeconomic deprivation and essentially for the last 15 years have worked in different leadership positions you know, well, started as a teacher, became assistant head teacher, deputy head teacher, realized I didn't want to be a head teacher. Um, and so then thought, well, my, my career is sort of funneling towards this maths uh, specialism. What can I do to continue that? And so for five years, I led this project where we took three schools that needed to raise outcomes and aspirations for their local communities um, and their, obviously the, the pupils. And the idea being that if you give teachers specialist support, if you invest in teachers, then you can um, raise those, you know, those sort of outcomes and aspirations um, as a as a byproduct. And and so for five years we you know worked with with those schools in Greater Zend. And then I still didn't want to be a a head teacher, so I was lucky enough to be able to join the team at uh, Complete Maths. I'm part of the maths team, and I sort of look at curriculum development, product development, but also professional development for our for our school. So. The things that I find really interesting, but also the things that I think are really high leverage in terms of supporting pupils, like professional development for teachers, high quality curricula, I get to still be involved in. So I think I've 
I've almost had like the semi-charmed professional life, but I also think that I've spent a lot of time developing myself. And like you say, you know, we were in in when we talked on the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast, we talked about um, professional reading, professional development, and taking taking control. And I think I've done that to an extent. See, so like I said, the me explaining me is my we is my weakest link. Um, so you know, hopefully that uh, summarizes who I am in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so in terms of like falling into that um, math specialist, was that because of your actual interest or was it something else? I've always been really interested in mathematics and the sciences, but at the start of my career, I realized that I wasn't very good at teaching maths. You know, I might've known it, but I didn't have the, the pedagogical awareness. And so yeah, I yeah. think two years in, there was a, there was the opportunity to do a postgraduate specialism for two years. And basically it was set around uh, taught, taught modules and then action research at the end of each year. And that was really, you know, that was when the sort of the beauty of, of maths pedagogy was opened up to me. And I thought, okay, this is the direction I want to go. So I was, I think I, I was maths lead from year three of my career um, and bit by bit, developed um, in that direction. I was lucky enough to go to Shanghai with the, well, I think it's, it used to be the NCTL. It's a body, body that doesn't exist in England anymore, but essentially it was the the group of teachers that went out prior to the maths hubs in England being formed and thinking, well, what is it we can take back from our Southeast Asian counterparts? Um, yeah. And so bit by bit, you know, it snowballs, doesn't it? So I went from not being very good at teaching mathematics to knowing quite a bit relative to where I, I started. And what was your biggest takeaway from Shanghai? It's the time the teachers spend together collaborating, you know, in, in the planning process. You know, I think that was the big takeaway from everyone. And I think that's almost the raison d'etre behind the maths hubs was that we wanted to give teachers more time. Now, whether that's been executed in, in the way that we saw it when we went to Shanghai, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain, but um, the, the sentiment that these teachers had three subjects to teach and they could spend the rest of their day focusing on uh, pedagogy research and engaging with things in a, in a meaningful way. And, and, and that sort of, that was career changing or, or sort of, you know, um, because I thought that this is the way it could be. And this is, these are the opportunity I want my teachers to have. Yeah. So when you say three subjects a day, is that like three hours a day or? Yes. So to my knowledge, um, and this is sort of replicated in, in quite a few jurisdictions in the area and um, you will typically have mathematics english mother tongue as three guaranteed subjects yeah. and then the rest come come through enrichment now it might be that si the sciences are included sometimes but I, as far as i'm aware pupil days involve three hours of, of core lessons and then the rest of the time they're either getting one-to-one -one tuition from their teachers or they're taking part in some enrichment with specialists and the teachers on the on the flip side will maybe teach two of those subjects. Or they'll, you know, if you're the math teacher, there's a high likelihood you're also going to be the, the physics teacher or the, that kind of thing, you know. So everyone has a, a much reduced um, timetable. And like yeah. for instance, in Singapore, they start at half seven in the morning, they finish at half one in the afternoon, and then the rest of the day is is that allotted time, you know. So the teachers won't leave until half four. Yeah, but you've got three solid hours where you can do things that are well that are yeah. meaningful. But it's obviously we've spoken about them. 
by what that's like on our end. And uh, yeah, you know, you're lucky you get 20 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and especially to actually collaborate as well. Um, you know, that's, that's gold really. And, and it would, would explain a lot of the reasons behind why um, they are getting such strong results. I, th I think it's certainly one, one of the factors. I mean, obviously with international comparisons, there are yeah. lots of things to take in kind. So I never want to say this is, this is definitely <laughs> it, but when, whenever I visit, visited those countries, those are the things that I think are most likely to transfer, you know, the idea of spending more time with the group of relative experts, you know, you've got this team, we're, we're the maths teachers. We're going to talk about maths and, and we're going to talk about maths pedagogy, you know, and I, I don't see how that could feel really because, you know, and so much of the, what's important comes from understanding our subject and how our subject might best be conveyed to relative novices so to speak so yeah i think you know somewhere like singapore for instance i think they've developed a very specific ecosystem because the, you know because the geography dictates it There's, there are no natural resources to speak of and so the the best or the sort of the most economically viable natural resource is the um is the population and an educated population will allow them to contribute um, to their economic growth and um, and so while we can't just go, here's the way they do it in Singapore, here's the way they do it in Shanghai, what we can do is say, okay, here are some things that they do that we might want to do as well. But, you know, at the minute, it's uh, it's in pockets rather than the norm, I think. Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting that you say, um, because I, uh, I tend to agree with you that there are a lot of things that we can learn, but yeah, at the moment, we're probably not um, taking that across the system as, as and making it more effective. Uh, look, I just wanted to touch on a, a blog that I, I recently wrote to do with uh, a systematic and structured approach to teaching primary mathematics. And I reached out to you to see what uh, your point of view was on it. And we came up with this idea to chat about it, uh, you know, on, on both of our podcasts. And so um, one of the things that I just want to touch on first is the pre-lesson planning phase part of it, because, you know, you've basically written a whole book on it, uh, thinking deeply about <laughs> primary mathematics. And so I'd love to just kind of get your um, thought process that you go through uh, for a couple of the, the chapters that you've written about. Um, and so firstly, I just want to start with that concept of concrete context, pictorial, abstract and language. Yes, I was quite facetious in the title of that chapter um, <laughs> because CPAL or CPA um, normally gets reduced to the, um, the the headlines. And I think it's an area that deserves thought because quite a lot of the material that we are exposed to can come from companies with an economic interest in, in promoting their usage. And so I think the usage of concrete resources, pictorial representations, abstract representations will depend on where you are in your, in your learning sequence and what it is the pupils already understand and what it is you hope they'll understand. So for instance, there, there's a ton of research into, into the use of different representations, like for instance, the Cuisinart rods. And it suggests that the symbolic notation or symbolic representation is more effective than the use of Cuisinart rods, which obviously sort of seems to go counter to everything that we would you know, believe about, uh, about the use of visual representations. Um, but what that 
what normally gets missed is the idea that all the pupils had sufficient prerequisite knowledge for the symbolic notation to be to be sufficient if that makes sense yeah. and so when we when we look at our usage of of cpal um we've got to think about the why because it's not a case of we start with concrete physical resources we move to pictorial representation then we move to symbolic it's it's much more nuanced than that and so what i tried to do in this chapter was sort of give you and give the reader an overview of here are some things that I think might be helpful. You know, obviously I break it down into sort of four key parts. I try to codify um, your minimum blueprint here. If you're a, not, a complete novice teacher, here are the four things I want you to know first, and then yeah. you can build your expertise after that. Um, and so I'm thinking about things like I want to represent the mathematical structure. I want to make sure that I'm using concrete resources or these representations with all pupils, not just pupils who are inverted commas struggling. And what else have I got? You need to make sure the scaffold comes down because if it's acted as a calculator, well then that's not uh, that's not really the purpose. And the the fourth the, the fourth, I know it's second in the in the list, it evades me at the moment. So we've got the structure. Oh yeah, clarity. I want to make sure that it's it it's adding to the clarity because if you you can very easily model pupils with them by choosing incorrect metaphors. And so, for instance, use the use of Numicon for negative numbers is one that I don't think adds clarity. You know, Numicon has many great uses, but your zero pairs are your option for showing the relationship between um, negative and positive um, numbers. And so, when I'm thinking about this, here are my four key areas that I want teachers to spend time thinking about. And then that can almost guide their their thought process, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, you know really important because uh, you know sometimes teachers think it's like a step by step process that you just go through for everyone. That's that's a sequence for every single concept, but it's not that simple, is it? No, no. I mean, it, it usually starts with the structure. You know, what what's the underlying mathematical structure here? Um. But again, I, I recently at conferences, I've been doing a talk on structures because despite this knowledge have been featured in many great books, like the work of um, Dirk Haylock, he talks about structures and it's on the essential reading list in all universities and certainly teacher, primary teacher training courses. And when I talk to teachers about the structures of arithmetic, I normally get blank responses or what's that? That sounds, that sounds interesting. Um, but essentially the structure in mathematics is um, a conduit for tying everything together. And so the relationships, and, the, and that's why context is so important here, because lots of the structures are contextual. They're ways to interpret similar ideas or the same ideas, Yeah. but you're, you're almost building that scheme and those connections, because then if, if you see the connection between augmentation and reduction, then you sort of stop looking at addition and subtraction as separate entities, and then that builds towards your understanding of, of negative numbers because you've got the identity properly and um, and sort of those fundamental laws of arithmetic. So on a, on a, on a surface level, the, the structure, you know, is about, well, what am I trying to sort of describe for my pupils? What am I trying to represent for my pupils? But then it goes, it goes even further and, and deeper um, in terms of, well, how does this structurally shape how my pupils will see mathematics ultimately? You know, so there, there, there's so much to think about. You know, there is, yeah. Um, 
and I think that's the important part as well is like thinking about what will my students be thinking about when I show them this because that's the part that we can sometimes miss out and again it comes back to that time factor if you haven't got time to think about what concrete materials you're actually going to use you might just look around your classroom and think all right here are some uh, quizzing rods. I'm just going to use them, even if it might not be the most effective way of representing what you're trying to represent. So, uh, yeah, look, I think it'll be a bit of a common theme of, of our conversation is coming back to time. But the next one I want to just um, yeah get you to to explain is threshold concepts. Yeah, so I mean, I think I first came across these via the work of David Dai in his book, What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong? Yeah. And it was, this, you know, but I think he draws on, I think it's Meyer and Land, some research that they did about uh, these particularly troublesome ideas that when understood, change how you see the world. It's probably, you know, because they, they've got a set of criteria for what a threshold concept is. And rather than listing those all, I think that that's probably the best way I can describe it is, you know, you've essentially got these big ideas that you can't remember ever thinking in a different way. I think I think on some level, like learning to read, because yeah. no one remembers lear learning to read, but your yeah. world was changed the day you learned to blend. You know, my my six-year-old is um, at the moment making that, crossing that bridge, you know, where he has, he's, he knows a lot of the phonetic code. He has been signing things out, but now he's starting to blend without having to, to, to deliberately blend. Obviously, there is a, a level of choice but he's doing it more naturally. And that means he's almost a reader. And then his world will be totally different because then he can just read about other things. Um, yeah. And so we have those in mathematics. I think we have them in, in all sort of fields. But in mathematics, the ideas that are most difficult to learn are the ones that will change our pupils the most. And just by being aware of them and the idea that these are going to, you know, because they are tricky probably because they're so important, um, we can then allow more time in our curriculum we can consider you know, more deeply the misconceptions that might arise or um, we really want to make sure we nail this first time around. Like, I think fractions in general prove tricky for most teachers and students. And so there, there might be some threshold concepts in there because you're, you're thinking about, well, I'm no longer adding whole numbers anymore. I'm, not, I'm adding parts of numbers. Perhaps the connection with ratio as well because that relationship, you know, isn't really well understood amongst pupils. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a big moment for my pupils. They're probably about 10 years old. And when they're when they're learning about this, what can I do to make sure that we do this right? Because if I give them misconceptions now, well, we've only got them for a little bit longer. Then they're going to secondary school and their secondary teachers are going to curse us because they, you know, these kids really don't understand fractions. And you know, so in terms in terms of threshold concepts, you're thinking about these these big ideas. I mean, on on thinkingdeeply.info, I have listed what I think are the threshold concepts, but there's no agreed list of what they are. It's almost this psychological phenomenon that uh, that's probably in its infancy. But I think the earliest research I read was like 2003, so it's been 20 years. But maybe that conversation, you know, I made that list in the hope that other people would say, "No, you're wrong." I would add this, this, and this, and um, but to date, no one has uh, no one's mentioned it to me. Oh, is that a challenge? <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, so looking at that idea of threshold concepts, how have you changed the way that you're taught, or the way that you've supported teachers in teaching 
based off that? I mean, prior to this, a certain part of me would have thought, why, why don't they understand this? You know, I, I've taught them this. They really should. But, you know, a lot of that, that sentiment came from not really understanding the, the literature, you know, and not having been exposed to it. Because maybe the, f- the first X number of years of my career um, was prior to the, the sort of the evidence in the foreign revolution in, yeah. in England. So there was a lot of time where it was Ofsted said we should do X, Y, and Z. And, um, and, you know, I was always interested in research and always interested in reading, but I wasn't perhaps provided with access to some of those more, you know, mind shift altering um, articles. And so David's books, um, you know, the the work of um, Kirshner, Sweller and Clark and those guys, you know, um, I was probably about five or six years into my career before I had access. But when I did, I thought, yeah. okay, th- th- this changes everything. And, and like you say, thinking about um, my own practice, well, it's, it's knowing where these pressure points come and then allowing more time around them. You know, so I'm not thinking, well, I've got eight weeks between September and the October half term. I want to go through all of these things. I'm thinking, okay, place value. We're not doing anything until it's nailed. Say I've got a year three class and we're learning about yeah. three um, numbers with three um, three places. Um, that, that Everything else is going to be built on that. So I'm going to get this right. You know, yeah. or the, for the first time I introduce multiplication to a class, something that if I do it right now, teachers down the line, you know, you've got to think about the teacher that's coming in the future, how they're going to feel as a result of the decisions I make. You might not see the payoff, particularly with younger children. But that, so that's how, you know, it was, it was being more considerate of, you know, I don't want to race through this. I want to really do this properly because we were told, well, not, not told, but the, when I first became a teacher, we had level one to level five at primary and it was a race to get through those levels as quickly as possible yeah and then round about the air round about the time reading this stuff i thought no that's not uh, that's not my game yeah you know it, it what you're saying makes me think a lot about how important you know having a sequential curriculum is as well uh because these kind of threshold concepts that you're talking about uh it can be a lot easier to know like what sorts of things students should have been exposed to beforehand if you've got that like enacted whole school curriculum, which again, like I'm not sure how it is over in the UK, but we're, we're probably still a fair way off having that consistently happening at schools here in Australia. You know, we've still got a lot of classes and year groups um, operating in silos in a way where they've got like a scope and sequence, which has been written, but you know, I know that not all teachers are really following that, you know, to the, I guess, the exact uh, level that we'd probably hope for. Um, and I think it just makes such a big difference for these sorts of concepts because, you know, year on year, you're getting students who have been exposed to different things and, and a different level of knowledge that they bring into their, their current classes. And it just makes such a difference to what the teacher is able to, to prepare for. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably very similar here. There's a lot of um, range in the curricula chosen and the approaches chosen. You know, if if you can if you can put a label on it, you'll see it in schools in in the United Kingdom. You know, and um, it's just yeah. it's just the nature of the of the beast. Um, but I do think that 
conversations have been happening for a while about, well, you know, certainly, you know, you mentioned Neil Allman and Chris Suchman when we, when we last spoke. Um, yeah. You know, Neil's been talking about curriculum for a long time. And I think a lot of that stuff transfers over into mathematics. Whereas when I first started teaching, the word textbook was a, was a dirty word, so to speak. And it's, I think it's less so now. And, but I do think, you know, we almost don't have the institutional knowledge to execute high quality curricula and textbooks um, in the same way as we might have in the past because of that uh, pedagogical swing, you know, the pendulum swung the whole, you know, the other way. And uh, we spent years making resources from scratch because that was the the badge of honor, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I think I understand the, uh, the pendulum analogy that you're talking about. Um, but the, the next area that I wanted to look at was depth and challenge. And I think a lot of teachers will be really interested in this one. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the, it's the key one because it, depth and challenge, they get thrown out almost carelessly sometimes without thought about uh, what they actually mean. And um, because on the surface, it can seem like, right. If we give them, if they give these guys really tricky maths and have some, some really, really hard maths at the end for those people who probably came to the lesson knowing most of the stuff that you were teaching anyway. Yeah. And that's challenge. But actually, um, I think a game changer for me was when I realized that depth and challenge were, were relative to the pupils. And so we got to think about um, what is it that makes this task or this question challenging for the pupils? Because sometimes the, the, the level of challenge or the desirable difficulty, so to speak, might just be the fact that they're being asked questions, you know? And in other times, you might need to draw on the depth of mathematics to set up novel situations and to ask pupils to bridge connections between different areas of mathematics. And I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Hall, who's the sort of the genius behind mathspot.com. And he's got got a task booklet that he updates on a weekly basis. And he has these really rich mathematical tasks you know, that sort of show just how deep you can go with maths. And in, in Teaching for Mastery, Mark McCord shows um, sort of the, almost the infinite depth of maths when he looks at uh, a problem that's known as 1089. And essentially it's, uh, you know, on the surface, if you can add and subtract three-digit numbers, you can engage with this problem. But he goes on to show how to provide a mathematical proof for this phenomenon. And so on that scale of basic access to a task all the way down to the the fundamental truths at the heart of it, depth and challenge is about finding where in this continuum we want our pupils to be. Um, and so, again, this doesn't come without thought. Um, it's thinking, what am I, what am I, what's the purpose here? How can I make this more challenging? Do I need to make this more challenging? Because like I said, just being there might be a challenge. And then tweaking accordingly. And so one of the things I always recommend teachers do is they look at the tasks that have been designed by expert task designers. Like yeah, there's a guy um, from the sort of mid to north of England called Gareth Metcalf and thinks really deeply about mathematics. He has um, his IC reasoning, IC problem solving books. And I would just sit with the teacher and go, well, why has Gareth chosen these numbers here? What's he, what's he trying to get the people to think about? Because you're like I said, you know, thinking by the pupils often gets missed. 
it's probably the only important thing that has to happen <laughs> to make yeah. a change in their in their minds. And so yeah, so that that kind of thing, thinking about the the things that make things more difficult for pupils, the reasons why we might want to do it, and then how expert question crafters, so to speak, uh, will 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 go about their business. Because for an outsider to walk into your classroom and say, "Oh, I didn't see much challenge in depth today," well. I'm not sure anyone can make that assumption because uh, it's relative in the mind of the pupils and the teacher will hopefully will have thought through why that is the, uh, that's the case. I mean, that was almost the, the driving force behind that whole chapter was the idea that an, an inspectors or anyone could walk in and say that they didn't see challenge in a lesson because I don't know how you could ever prove that. Yeah, it's it's one of the, definitely one of those funny things that, you know, the poor proxies for learning that we come across. Um the, the next one that I wanted to ask you about was a storytelling one. Um, you know, like I, I personally find um, storytelling like such a useful tool. And when you see teachers who are able to do it really well, a lot of them are like quite experienced and they've got that depth of knowledge to be able to use the right analogies um, so that students are actually able to get the point. You know, like a lot of times we, we think of storytelling as being um, you know, telling stories, but sometimes the students get caught on the wrong parts of the story. And so when we're talking about, like, what are they thinking about and what do they remember? They remember, like, you know, the the climax of the story, you know, being when the, the teacher got bitten by a crocodile or whatever it was, not the actual part uh, that they should be thinking about, which alludes to the mathematics or whatever it is. Um, you know, so how have you seen um, storytelling being used effectively in maths yeah, I mean, we, I think we spent the best part of an hour talking about this on, on Tadapi recently, so I'll try and give yeah, you a yeah. much shorter version than that. And, yes. But it, it, I think it all comes down to the work of Dan Willingham, and he talks about what, what's concrete for pupils, because like, obviously we were just talking about them, the sort of the concrete and pictorial. Concreteness doesn't have to be physical. It, it, it just has to be something that the pupils are familiar with and are in are completely comfortable with, you know, so what's concrete for a pupil um, can just be an understanding of how things in the world behave. Um, and so I think story for me, however you use it, should be a bridge between that concrete and the sort of slightly more abstract, you know, your goal state and your current state. Um, and so things like etymology can be used really well. Um, particularly in mathematics, because the etymology was normally chosen for a reason. Stories I often tell are about how the um, you know the origin of the mathematical symbols. Yeah. Yeah. You because know, the, the you know the, sometimes there's not 100% consensus, but there's a really interesting story, like the um, the symbol for division. There's an argument that it used to be a little dagger that would cut things up. Um, and so one sort of contextual interpretation of division might be this idea that we're breaking things into, into smaller parts and sharing them out. Um, so I'm, I might use that as a story um, to, to work my way into the mathematics. And so, yeah, so I think as long as you're thinking about how can I take people from where they are to where I want them to be, and even if it's just an introduction, like, I mean, in the book, I talk about zero, and it's got a really rich etymology, you know, a really purposeful etymology, but it's not going to be the only thing I tell pupils about about zero, it's going to be the first thing. And then, oh, let's do some mathematics with, the, with this idea. So I think 
the idea behind storytelling is that we should look at what makes stories particularly memorable. You know, things like the conflict between different characters and the resolutions. But I think in the main, it's just about thinking about how can I bridge this gap? I think that should be the starting point. Um, and then from there, we, de we develop. Because I think since Dan Wanneedham said that's in the, in the first edition of Why Don't Students Like School, I think that that's probably the bit of it that hasn't been, you know, the rest of it has been widely discussed in, you know, three or four times over. Yes. I think that's the, there's, there's more room for conversation. So I was trying to add to that conversation. I don't have all the answers, but I have seen lots of stuff work um, in this area. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to generate stories that people can use. And doing that episode a couple of weeks ago, that's really helped me put it back on my mind because it's something I promised in 2020. And just never got around to doing. <laughs> yeah, I found the episode really interesting, and that's kind of why I thought I'd bring it up as well. So, for this, the next part of the conversation, I kind of want to go through, like, um, you know, I mentioned before my general structure of a maths lesson that I've put together. Um, I'd like to know, you know, what your thoughts are on it and what things you would do differently uh, and why. My general thoughts are, um, are, are really positive. Um, I mean, we discussed it at length. And, you know, the more you spoke about it, the more I could see the reasoning behind it, you know. Um, and so, for instance, it was very, very clear that depth of thought at key junctions is crucial to the success of the model. You know, it was clear that you were establishing the minimum sort of parameters for novice teachers. You know, okay, if you're coming to this with sort of low pedagogical content knowledge, here are the ways that I'm, I hope you will behave and um, because then over time you can get more expert and you can understand the reasons why you're doing, doing these things. I mean, the more I listened, you know, I was thinking there are a lot of parallels between how I would do things. I think where I am in my own practice, I would definitely have all of these things. Like we talked about um, sort of your daily, your daily review, you things like having retrieval practice, space practice, interleaving prerequisite knowledge i think i would perhaps put prerequisite knowledge as something that comes significantly before the lesson and um, because what i do in the lesson is going to be determined by what prerequisite knowledge there is if that makes sense so almost like a complete maths we have the the functionality to make prerequisite quizzes that yes. quiz is going to determine whether or not i actually teach this or whether i need to actually focus my attention somewhere else if that makes sense yeah. Um, and, and so um, the conveyor belt curriculum is almost, you know, oh, I've got this. No, I understand what the pupils know, but I'm going to teach it anyway because my, my plan says, um, you know, it's week three of term one. Um, and that's definitely not what we, um, what we discussed when we discussed this before. Um, but I think that's the lived reality of many teachers is this idea that, well, we're just going to follow this. We're going to follow the whole way through. Um, so, yeah, so I would, I would make a point. Of um, of identifying that prerequisite knowledge with enough time to change what I do in the classroom, if that makes sense. Um, you know, things like um, sort of the, the the concepts to focus on your basic maths fact, facts, your number sense, all the, you know, mental maths. Um, absolutely, I would definitely have all of those in there. And I really like that you had problem solving too, because there's a thing from um. David and I said about uh, one of the things we can do to make sure retrieval practice um, works is to, is to vary the question type. 
And so one of the things we started doing early on was we you know, always having a range of different questions so that pupils couldn't get into the routine of guessing what was going to happen next, because then they're not thinking. You go, as soon as you can guess what's going to happen next, you're on autopilot, and that's that's not going to work. So we would have a range, um, and so we'd have this almost this five-question grid, but where the questions featured, what the question types were, which would change you know, on a, on, a, on a daily basis. Well, for the first year on a daily basis, because then once you've done a year's worth, you can then sort of draw on that question bank that you've, you've designed. And then, I mean, obviously, in, in thinking David about primary mathematics, I talk about the importance of modeling. In, in my sort of, you know, and being a relative expert, there's a lot more fluidity, um, not more, just there's a lot of fluidity between the different sort of phases. You can't really tell which phase we're in, you know, because there'll be a bit for me, a bit from the kids, a bit for me, a bit from the kids, maybe a bit more extended practice while I draw with a, a group. Like you say, I loved your idea of the reverse, um, the reverse release. Because um, it's the one that gets missed, you know, how do they, these people who can go deeper, how, how much of our time do they get? So having, having a system in place, a codified system in place that allows you to think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the reverse re release today. That's brilliant. Instead of here's Monday, part, 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 um, which we had in England, we had the, the three part lesson was almost like the way you had to do things. And I, I, you actually say this in here between Monday and Thursday, here's the journey we want to go on. And then we'll see where we are in that journey. And I'll be drawn on all the different things you're drawing into, into your sequence. But because I'm more, more expert um, than the teachers this is designed for, there, there's probably less clear demarcation between each of it. So all the same stuff. Yeah. But it's um, but I because I've got the capacity to be more responsive. Um, and almost yeah. I'm, I'd be hoping that your teachers get to that point. So it's not a criticism of the, of the model at all. But I'm just thinking about the distinction between how an expert would interpret it and how yeah. your target your target audience would interpret. It, if that makes sense, and you know, because everything in here um, is chiming with my experience of how we can help pupils learn. You know, and I think, um, yeah, that, I think it, it could really help a lot of teachers. And so I hope as many people as possible have a look at it. Yeah, awesome, and and I think it is um, really nice to hear. The distinction as well as to like how an expert teacher can build off this, you know, and, and what sorts of things you're thinking about when you're looking at this this model um, and the similarities and differences to your own thinking. Uh, I, yeah, I, th I find it really useful. And I like how it, the prerequisite quiz. And I think like um, I didn't really, I haven't gone into a lot of depth um, in that model in looking at assessment because I was like, you know, that's, that's a whole nother thing if I start talking about assessment. Um, but I do like having that, you know, I could even quite easily put together like a, you know, pr like a prerequisite quiz at the front end of that. Um, when I, when I put the prerequisite kind of knowledge in there, it was more like it was the retrieval stuff. So the, the things that they have um, hopefully already looked at, but yeah, I think it's still useful to have that quiz because it's going to help guide where you actually start teaching uh, the new concept from. So yeah, the next part which, which, yeah, I think it'll be really useful to talk about is actually um, whether or not you have a preferred word problem solving model that you use, you know, like there's a lot of different acronyms, uh, you know, such as CUBES, QUACK, UPAC, but do you have one that you kind of um, follow or how do you teach uh, teachers to teach their students to address uh, approaching word problems? 
Nice. I mean, it's an interesting one. I think rucksack is the sort of the model that most English schools will have above their whiteboard. And yeah. it, it's really interesting because a lot of the research into how experts solve problems will have those key sort of components that you've, you've outlined, you understand, plan, answer, and check. It's whether or not it's useful for relative novices. I mean, I, I'm kind of anyone before A-level as a novice in, in mathematics. You know, children might understand stuff really well. Yeah. But the level of expertise to qualify for the level of expertise in the literature about expertise, I feel all of school of mathematics until you get to that post-16 level is probably um, in, the, in the novice ballpark. I don't know. Um, but but um, so when I think about problem solving, I think about the idea that problem solving is domain specific. So what we want to do is we want to try and get people to draw on domain-specific knowledge um, and apply it in perhaps a novel context. And so we'll, we'll, how do we do that? Um, I mean, in the, in the chapter on, on bar models and things, I look at, well, we start with what we know, what we don't know, and that, and that will typically um, sort of reveal what um, what what you're up to. I mean, yeah, I mean, Craig Barton has his three points where he's like, you know, you need to... Uh, you need to read what you don't understand the question choose a strategy execute the strategy you know probably somewhere along the lines of that and um, you know well, what do we know what don't we know perhaps drawing a bar um, if appropriate um, and then yeah and then going from there because like i say that those representations don't don't do the maths for you but they can certainly allow you to outsource some of your cognitive energy and um, on well, here's the structure. I can now focus on the mathematical part of it, if that makes sense. And um, so, yeah, so I think anything we do needs to be grounded in the idea that pupils will need to have solid understanding of the mathematics that they need to use in the in the problem context. Whatever we do, I think we need to understand problem solving and you know, understand the mathematics uh, I've, got, I've got lost in my uh, my inability to identify the correct word there but i hopefully the the, the sort of the the sentiment is clear that um you know i, I, don't, I don't think these are it's know, not the important pupils. yeah yeah I, th I think so yeah and um, I, I don't think it's going to hurt but i don't think we should conflate it and i say we as a profession and um, yeah how experts behave with how novices behave in, in problem-solving situations, which is a lot of the research will sort of focus on, I think. Yeah, and, and I, I, you know, I do find it interesting because it's, it's obviously a big part of mathematics of problem-solving and, um, you know, like where do we throw in these word problems and how do we approach them? Um, like, do you want to just talk about that? Like where would you generally um, use a word problem? They will typically... Um, I've got sort of an interesting, I'm not convinced that a lot of the mathematics that, or the problem solving the pupils do in primary is actually novel. I think there are certain problem structure types, like grammatical structures. And if we understand what those structures are, well, then we're just solving similar iterations of those, you know, I think maybe 13 or 14 different ways that there was some research by um, a Japanese researcher. The name escapes me, um, and I don't want to butcher it, but I know Nick Hart had a, a sort of praises on his blog when he was talking about mathematical problem solving. And 
essentially it was the idea that you, you were given these grammatical structures and it could be sort of matched with a, a, a bar model that would represent that grammatical structure, if that makes sense. And so for me, I will teach my pupils those structures quite often because pupils who are from mathematically or even financially affluent backgrounds will have someone outside of school teaching them this stuff. But the pupils I work with don't. So we need to bridge that gap. And so I'm thinking, okay, when, when you meet this, this kind of um, question, this is helpful. So then when it gets to the point where I want them to apply their mathematical knowledge, I'm almost trying to develop tasks which go beyond reading and have are, are more open-ended, if that makes sense. And I'm trying to think best way to describe it, but essentially when it comes to word problems, I will I will del- deliberately teach the the structures so the pupils know what to expect because for instance things like reading might be an issue for them and so we want yes. to re- reduce that burden as much as possible and um, but when it's time for the mathematics to be really rich I'll think really carefully about the tasks that I'm setting and there may be tasks that I want pupils to move towards mathematical proof with and um, as opposed to solving problems so yeah I mean it's tough because problem solving is everything from all mathematics is problem solving to in this very specific set, this is problem solving. But in general, I'll make sure pupils have a rich diet, you know, regular basis um, of seeing mathematics in context, but also that I will utilize rich tasks as almost like an assessment point, but also just a, a, an opportunity for people to engage with the, with the mathematics itself. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because... I mentioned to you before, um, my previous guest was Karen Zanotopoulos, and she has a, um, a background as a speech pathologist. And so she talked a lot about how um, how much of an impact like language has on um, children's ability to actually comprehend these word problems. You know, a lot of them, a lot of the times, like the word problems are actually not written very well. They're not structured grammatically well um, for, for children to understand and to, you know, to get what the purpose of that question is. So I like how you, you spoke about, you know, you'll actually teach your students how to approach this problem um, rather than kind of leaving it up for, for them to work it out for themselves. I mean, sometimes whenever you see, whenever you see questions in the wild, it seems as if grammatical complexity has been chosen as a substitute for mathematical complexity. Yes. Um, and, you know, if we're trying to tie kids in knots and sometimes teachers will post, what does this question mean? I have no <laughs> idea. I've never, and <laughs> um, when, when you get to that stage, you know, you, you probably need to take a step back and, and go in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Uh, look, one of the biggest questions, uh, one of the biggest challenges that teachers face is differentiating to meet the needs of students with varying levels of mathematical understanding. Um, you know, like in Australia, we've, we've got this problem where, because, like I said before, in terms of the curriculum, um, we haven't quite got students coming into classes where they've all experienced the the same type of teaching previously. And so we do have these big levels of of mathematical understanding. How do you suggest teachers address this? I mean, that is is the big question. Um, I mean, what I'd I'd highly recommend is not differentiating by the expectations on the pupils, because ultimately those pupils who are 
and quote unquote behind will we'll you know it'll exacerbate the, the gap between the pupils essentially you know if you're given the pupils who are, who are doing really well in mathematics who, have, who understand the mathematics you're giving them deeper richer mathematics or more difficult mathematics then you know they'll just go further and the other pupils will go behind so i mean obviously complete maths we have the the mastery model um you know which i think the research bears out is um, an effective way of of reducing that gap between pupils but it ultimately will dictate how your teachers behave you know so for instance the idea of prerequisite quizzing you know you need to know where pupils are going into it then you've got your high quality instruction just like you've outlined in your um in your in your blog post then the bit that probably gets missed out you will either have correction or enrichment and um, and so you will have pupils who are engaging with the same mathematics but in a, in a different way and you'll have those pupils who need another metaphor another explanation you know different models and um, or just more time because that's yeah. the one thing like yeah you know mark McCord talks about time is the big factor you know and it's we talked about rushing through the curriculum earlier on well if we take our time and do things right uh, at the start you know you're going to need to do less and less of that so i mean when i was in school i tried to get as close to that model as possible and so it's about things like rearranging your school day so that you could fit in those corrective interventions making sure that um you know teachers knew that they didn't need to rush the whole way through but ultimately if you keep going around that cycle you generally find that the gap between your pupils gets smaller and smaller and in and in the first instance you know when you've got large gaps prioritize the people who don't know or the pupils from socio-economically deprived backgrounds and uh, as you know it's it's fundamental that these pupils understand completely and yeah. because you know i don't know about you guys but a lot of time there will be private tuition, things like that there. It'll not be the pupils who need it the most who have access to those resources, you know, which, you know, one of the reasons we've got tutors so we can provide party of access. And, but that's probably another conversation, you know. So I, I think I would definitely try and get as close to that model as possible. And I would set your expectations on four or five years, you know. And once that the children who are in year one, primary one now, when they leave primary school, how do we do closing that gap? Because obviously when they come in, the gaps are smaller. So let's yeah. try and keep them closer together, you know? Yeah, really good point. And, and I think like that, that would also help teachers um, in understanding like where to prioritise their time, which can be tricky as well. Um, look, I, I know that you've also done a lot of thinking around like professional development, professional learning, um, and that's a big part of your role now. What sorts of things have you learned about um of translating research to practice? Um, I mean, probably that it's not as scary as it quite often appears to teachers. And probably you don't really need to read every single word. Like, I mean, sometimes you get research papers that are 30, 40 pages long. But like looking, knowing where to look for your basic entry, entry level understanding of a paper, you know, go to the abstract, go to the methodology, go to the summary. You know, do the three match up? You know, does this methodology match up with, you know, does it allow them to make the conclusions they make at the end? You know, and I know that it's not the social sciences in particular aren't as um, scientifically robust as perhaps the, the natural sciences. But, you know, you can tell different things from a sample of two than you can from a sample of three to four thousand, you know. So, you know, you don't need to be absolutely research savvy. But if you look at those three parts and if you see if they match up with each other, 
and you can get a you can get a feel for things um and just reading a little bit every day because then as your own um capacity increases you 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 free up more space for thinking about the uh, about the the underpinning research yeah and in terms of um like supporting teachers in actually making changes you know what sort of methods have you used for that so making changes to their research engagement or just in um, general? More to their actual classroom practice my preferred methods outlined in thinking deeply about primary mathematics it's uh, sort of I, I don't know if it's got a, an actual this type of coaching but it's essentially big input follow-up like like you mentioned to me before and you know so I was very lucky that I was in school with for five years and my only job was supporting teachers in their professional development. So I would teach alongside people or alongside them and almost like putting your money where your mouth is kind of situation. But we would phase responsibility from me to them. So I would first lesson, I would teach 100% lesson and they're watching and saying, okay, we're going to develop this particular part of our practice. I want you to watch how I do this. And then, but by the end of say 21 days later they have full responsibility by the end so what we do i do a little less they do a little more um and bit by bit we're working on these small incremental points because if we're not specific and um, well then things get lost we, we, we talked about this and yeah so to change people's practice i think we need to remove it from the accountability process so it's very much about we're investing in you as a person as a professional be really specific and then support teachers in that with physical demonstrations and sort of almost in the moment feedback. And um, what do I call it? Breaking the fourth wall where I will stop teaching the class and I'll talk to the teacher and explain, I've made this decision because of this and then continue on teaching the lesson. So then they're getting hopefully a little bit more about my thought process because you're making three, three odd thousand decisions in a day, you know, how is anyone else going to know what you've been thinking? You know, so, so that, that, that in a nutshell is, is my approach, but I think it's very hands-on and very specific as to what is it we want to get better at. Yeah, and I think that part there that you just mentioned is, is really important, is, is actually um, explaining to the teacher your decision-making process because um, a lot of the times, like, that's, you know, that's the part that the, the, the novice teacher doesn't actually get. They don't see that. That's the reason why you've made this decision. So making it explicit. I like how you actually make it live as well uh, because sometimes it can be hard to talk about that afterwards, especially if the teacher didn't kind of pick up on that cue that you got. Um, yeah, that's cool. And, and I, I also like the, the gradual release um, that you've kind of spoken about. Like I've often thought like that's basically what we should be doing for initial teacher education is that when we have these beginning teachers coming in, like rather than, like it's usually just you know I do and then you do, without that um, that we do phase where that would actually allow the teacher time to really focus in on like one particular technique or aspect of a lesson rather than trying to do the whole thing at, at once because like you said you know the teacher then is, they're cognitively overloaded because they've got to think about thousands of of decisions that they've got to make at once rather than let's just here's five minute block. This is what I want you to work on for it. I'll do the rest of the lesson. Um, yeah, that, that's a much more sensible way of, of supporting teachers. Yeah, I mean, you guys need an early career framework because that's that's changed the game because it's been really it's really specific about what you need to, you know, certainly from a, a generalist perspective, you know. Yes. 
for sure. Uh, look, Kieran, it's it's been great talking to you today, and, and I've been lucky enough to to spend the last couple of hours with you. Um, and I, I hope that people do listen into uh, the first part of this this podcast on on thinking deeply about primary um, education, um, and they can kind of compare our our different ways of of teaching and and see. Uh, you know, how I've, I've looked at things as well. But look, this is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. Um, and so I'd like to ask my guests, you know, what other bits of knowledge do you think teachers need to have? So that might be based on uh, misconceptions or or bits of knowledge that have been transformational for your own development. But yeah, what, do you, what other bits of knowledge do you think other teachers need to have? I think teachers need to be aware of the limited impact that mistakes have on the world around them because it can be very very easy to put ourselves in the position where we we beat ourselves up too much for the mistakes we make in the classroom but the best way to get better at anything is through careful deliberate practice and so while this is not necessarily a knowledge base to go to and um, and if you want, um, if you prefer, I can give you something. But I think that what, what I would really like teachers to do is to consider the healthiest way to get better is to be realistic about what your impact is and what you want it to be, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think it's great, you know, and I think some like teachers are the harsh, harshest critics, you know, their harshest critics in terms of their expectations. You know, they want things to be perfect and they want it to be perfect now. <laughs> Um, and so I think it's it's really an important message that, you know, just take a bit of that pressure off yourself. It doesn't have to be perfect now. Just be realistic with what you can do. Um, yeah, in, in the short amount of time that we have to actually think deeply about what we're doing. Um, yeah. yeah, so look, thank you so much for your time uh, today. And, and I know you've, you've got a big day of work up ahead. So um, <laughs> I hope I haven't drained you too much from, from our, our conversation, but uh, I've really enjoyed it and I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been lovely. What was I thinking booking in before work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank thank you. you very much. I really enjoyed chatting to Kieran about all things to do with primary mathematics. I'm a huge fan of Kieran's podcast and knew that he would have so many gold nuggets of information to share. I'm sure that you would agree that it is really apparent how much time, thought and research Kieran has put into his thinking around maths. Here are my key takeaways. When planning to use concrete, pictorial or abstract representations, it's not, it's not just as simple as st starting with concrete and then moving to pictorial and abstract. We need to think about the mathematical structure and what will benefit the students the most. Whatever resource we use, use it with all students, but make sure that the structure comes down and needs to add to the clarity. Depth and challenge need to be relative to the pupil. A great PL activity can be to break down questions that have been created by experts and ask them why they have chosen the numbers or the decision that they have made and what they are trying to get their pupils to think about. I also found it interesting how he spoke about the, th the fact that as a teacher with more expertise, his lesson structure is more fluid and observers may find it harder to work out what phase his lesson is in. I loved his examples of how storytelling can be used in looking at the origin stories of the mathematical symbols. When he spoke about problem solving, like Karen's Anatopolis in episode 9, he mentioned the importance of using diagrams and more specifically bar models. 
He also made it clear that it's so important that we teach our students how to approach a problem and not just leave it up for chance. How often we mistaken grammatical complexity for mathematical complexity when designing word problems. Really focus on getting things right for the early years because eventually the gaps will get smaller and smaller. I also like his suggestion of using a gradual release of responsibility when supporting teachers in their practice. Kieran also added in the idea of stopping during a demonstration to explain to the teacher why he made the moves that he did. If you're interested in listening to the first part of this conversation, you can listen to it on episode 120 of the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast. In this part of our chat, Kieran grilled me about my model for mathematics teaching, how it has been informed by the science of learning, and how we can support teachers in developing their practice. I was proud to fly the flag for Aussie educators as his first guest from Australia. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button because there are some really fascinating conversations coming up. Next up, you will get an in-depth look at the Marsden Way with Manisha Gazula and Troy Veray. I really appreciate all of you who have helped share the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. I feel the more educators who are able to listen to these conversations, the more impact we can have in getting evidence-informed practice in our classrooms. So, that's it from me for today, but as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.